Welcome to Kansas Rural Center Presents, the Kansas Rural Center's podcast on farming, agricultural policy, civic engagement, and much more happening in the Sunflower State. I'm your host, Ryan Gertzen-Regeer, the Program and Admin Manager here at KRC. And in this series of our podcast, the Kansas Rural Center is presenting reflections from Kansas farmers about the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill and how it could assist farmers with improving soil health and conservation practices on their farms. Co-hosting this episode with me is Zach Pastora, environmental champion and the president of KRC's board of directors. And joining us to talk about the 2023 Farm Bill is Tom Giesel, farmer from Pawnee County. So welcome to you both. Uh, Tom, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and your connection to farming? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity to, to visit with you today. I guess start with, I'm 69 years old, getting close to 70. Um, farm here in Pawnee County all my life, with the exception of the four years that I attended Fort Hayes State University and received my BS in geology. And then after that, I worked one year in a, on a seismic crew, oil exploration crew. Then I came back to the farm permanently in 1975. Shortly thereafter, I married my wife, Cheryl. She was from Oakley. We went to school together up at Hayes. And we've got three children, five grandchildren. Uh, one, one, our son lives in Boston, and uh, both our daughters live in Kansas City. When I started, of course, I farmed. I, I grew up on a farm. We had a farm all all this time. And after I got back from college in my year of of work in the seismograph industry, I uh, formed we formed a partnership. My father and brother and I, and we. That went on until about 1985 when my father passed away. And then my brother and I continued in a farming partnership until I believe 2013 when he decided to pursue other other endeavors. That's that's kind of my farming background. I've always been active in my community. I also very active in, I think, in my community with uh, my church and with, with uh, other organizations within the community and then I've always been active in the farmers union especially Kansas farmers union I was a state officer for over 20 years and then currently I serve as the amateur historian for national farmers union I do a lot of research about farm organizations and and communities and 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 it's in there um, maybe more of a sociological look than anything but but that's how and I plan to do more of that because I'm this will be my final year of active farming. I, my wife and I, we own a little over 800 acres. We've leased a lot of ground over the years too, and and uh, now I'm just going to lease my ground out and you know pursue these other things and, that I really enjoy. Uh, Tom, I mean, you put a lot of uh, your time and energy over the years, uh, uh, both individually and your family. Um, it means a lot to you to be on the land and, and to participate in the farming. It's amazing to hear that you're, uh, in your last year, what's that like? And, uh, what's that, what's that, um, really got, what's, how's that really impacted you on the farm? You know, what does that mean to you? You know, it, there's, there's a lot of different angles for this. And, and I think I was really methodical on my, um, my exit from active farming, or I'm still in the process. But um, after my brother left, I downsized. We had a lo pretty large farm and down, just continually downsized it. And I just 
right along till now. And I made a conscious effort to to uh, the land that I leased to get it in the hands of young farmers, young families in my community, because my landlords kind of relied on me to say, okay, who do we get to farm now? And so I did it kind of slow and stealthy in a way, because I wanted to maintain the, the community connections. And I believe I was pretty successful. It was good for the, the landowner as well, because they, you know, they, there was these relationships you have with other families. Um, there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of um, a lot of uh, connections there. In fact, the last farm that rented farm that I let go did recently. My grandfather rented it from their grandfather, and it was the 83 year. This is 83rd year that these two families have farmed together, which is pretty incredible. And that was probably one of the more difficult transitions I had was to to inform his family that okay, I mean everybody knew it was going to happen, but okay, I'm, this is it. So it wasn't exactly what I expected, but, but I, I've, I've taken it from perspective that, that I'm not quitting farming, but I'm transitioning out and transitioning somebody else in. And hopefully, you know, in one sense, kind of a recreation of our community because I've, it's pre, you know, presented me wonderful opportunities in my family. And now I want somebody else to have that opportunity. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And, you know, with the aging farmer population, we definitely need more more attitudes like that, I think, out there. That's really, really great to hear. And, you know, I might just add that, I mean, you know, people always that are involved in agriculture always say, what's in my blood? And I think it is. I think it's part of who we are as human beings. I mean, for me, it's been a really rewarding occupation, lifestyle, you know, the vocation aspect of it. I think, I think it's all how you look at that. I, I, I looked at it as it was a wonderful opportunity for me to use everything I had, all my senses, my gifts, use my head, my hands, my, my heart, my soul, my brain, and that unique blend of, of having an occupation or a life that you can, you can pull all these things together and use it for the, for the greater good, for your own good and for the greater good as well. You know, family farming, and I've read this, before and I, I understand it too is you know really communal in nature it's all about families it's about communities it's it's all these things and i i believe that is one of the big draws um big draws to agriculture family farm agriculture i mean family farming besides being community you know very communal in nature we have the opportunity to have these have this interaction with the commons and all the all the aspects of the commons and i think that's what pulls a lot of people into this because you know it's a it's an act of cooperation it's an act of organizing all these things pulled into one and and that's why i think uh it's it's almost like a, a matrimony of a sense of, of nature and and uh, humans and communities in the, in the larger sense and it allows us to create so many different communities in so many different ways. I mean, we do it with our cooperatives financially. We do it, you know, socially. We do it through our education. Um, you know, the old organization and cooperation of the of our farm organization really bleeds through into our to our very life. So, and I think I think the other thing we find is that 
real real farmers understand that you know that it's we are dependent upon what's around us um you know it's it's um it all fits in i, I know we want to talk about conservation and i really do believe that you know the the conservation when you talk about conservation it's more the art of conservation than the science or it's equally weighted i think we a lot of times we look at conservation as a scientific approach but really it's an art so um yeah i mean true farming is more art than science well tom i i, I think you're not alone but it's clear you have a, a point of pride uh, both uh, personally and as, as far as cam carrying on a family legacy contributing to your community and i think it um i i wonder how much uh, pride you take in being a, a steward of the land, what that ethic means to you in terms of, of uh, soil health and conservation as we uh, start thinking about ways um, farmers can help improve uh, soil health uh, and all that. Yeah, I mean, I think I grew up with conservation. I, you know, I was born in 19, excuse me, 1952 it was a different type of farm, but it was a wonderful farm. And I think just by nature, the fact that it was so meager and humble and small scale that, you know, conservation was just, you just, that was part of it. I mean, and it wasn't just the physical conservation of the soil, which we practiced. And I, I've, I've got these wonderful old photos and actually an old eight millimeter film of my dad building his first terraces with the whirlwind terrace or single bottom like plow with the spinning auger that built the terraces and you know literally did that inch by inch and and through the years how we adapted to different practices um back in this 1960s there was some tillage new tillage ideas about what we call a v-blade or an undercutter where it was a, a giant v-blade or multiple ones and it would just slice into the surface raise the residue cut the roots of the unwanted plants the weeds and set it right back down which at that time was really a classic conservation tool and still is i mean there's there's still a lot of value in it and of course how that's evolved into all the other practices we we don't you know we go to now and um so i've been through that i'm not as old enough to to be back in the good old days but but I've seen conservation from a different, I think a different perspective. And it's not just soil conservation. We, we, we conserved everything. We conserved water even um, to a great degree. And I think that's one thing that gets overlooked when we talk about conservation. I mean, I know we, we understand about water conservation, but, but the way I grew up, I mean, we, you know, we watched every gallon as opposed to now it's just, you know, high volume, high, high access, um, you know, high usage. And, uh, you know, we, we, we watch that conversion of, in a simplistic sense, really, uh, from water to milk or water to crops or, you know, we've really made that connection a lot easier then because we physically, you know, manhandled or, you know, that those type of uh, assets. And, you know, you, we, you know, we didn't have the cabs on the tractors and so on and so forth. So, you know, you could, you that interaction was interesting because you'd smell it you could smell you could feel you could taste it 
you can hear things as opposed to now. And I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't give up a cab on a, on a tractor or combine now, but, but it, it did give you a different perspective about what you're doing, why you're doing. And in some cases, it actually forced you to stop doing something if it wasn't right, which now we, by brute force, you know, or should say brute technology, we can do about whatever we want. So do you, I mean, I understand that you've carried this ethic through um, the, the generations and it's, it's, it's kind of uh, common, common to you. I'm wondering if you see that in, uh, in the farms and your peer group uh, across Kansas. I mean, you think we're getting closer to conservation measures? Have, did we get away from this ethic? I, I believe it's still here and I believe the vast majority of, of farmers really want to practice conservation for the most part. I mean, you always have your exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, I think part of the issue is that it's, we've gotten so busy and so involved and so large that, you know, it's like, okay, I got to do this conservation thing as well. And the other aspect is, I think the, the farms have evolved to where, and I think concert, we've tried to make conserva conservation fit our section lines of the technologies we own. In other words, we farm whole quarters of ground instead of fields. I remember we used to farm by the terrace and you would do like, oh, my dad would say, well, go out and we're going to plow this bottom four terraces, you know. Well, now it's like we're going to work the southeast quarter of 24 or, you know. And not that that's bad, but with the technologies and the abilities we have, we can, and we can do it with cons in, cons in a conserving way, but not quite with the sense of art of conservation. Conservation practices are, you know, there's a lot of good things going on with, with cover crops and with, you know, strip till, no till, all those things. It's, that's all very useful, very good, very thoughtful. And um, I guess kind of regress a little bit here. I, I do a lot of research. I read old newspapers, a lot of them, uh, on microfilm and have a few a hard copies, quite a few hard copies. But I go back and say the early 1900s and I'll read articles about cover crops, how they were usable. And so we circle back to those same things eventually. Um, um, it's just, you know, we do what's easiest for us sometimes. And well, actually humans do it most of the time. You can do it well with conservation too. And, and you can kind of do it under the cover of conservation. Um, the, I, mean, I, I just, I guess I'm kind of stuttering around here and I apologize for that, but, but I want to be, I want to be very careful because most, most everybody I know really wants to do it right. Um, you know, if we talk about a little bit about conservation too, I mean, I think, well, let me say it this way. I think when I, in days past, and I hate to always talk about the past, but I think it's relative to the present. Um, we relied on, you know, local education from like extension agents and local cooperatives and so on and so forth. And, and now we've, we've come to believe and trust from someone that, that lives 2000 miles from us, which may be very useful and very thoughtful. But in one sense, I think, all conservation should be local. And we used to have this, our soil conservation boards, which we still have, had a lot more influence. Our, well, it was called ASCSM, but it's FSA boards were local. 
and and they still are but i think they don't understand the power they have and and they they used to wield a, a lot of power there were many people doing many good things and there's still a few people doing a lot of good things too you know when we uh think about i guess some of the common i guess i'll say like modern what we're thinking of right now is as some soil health practices um, implementing cover crops, reducing tillage, either going to, you know, strip till or no-till, grazing, rotational grazing, um, some field buffer strips, things like that, even crop rotations, I guess, for some folks who don't, don't employ those practices. Um, you know, when you, in your farming experience, have thought about either implementing one of those as a new practice that you were doing, or just kind of increased where, you know, how much acreage you were doing that on. Um, I'm curious what kind of what kind of barriers you encountered. I mean, and also if, if you had other um, other practices besides what I just listed, you know, that you, you felt were good for conservation, please include those. But, you know, we kind of know, I think nationally that um, lack of knowledge, lack of time, lack of money are some of the big barriers to changing how you're farming and, and implementing some of these practices that might be better for the health of your soil. Um, curious what kind of what kind of difficulties you encountered kind of along those lines, if any. Well, I think, you know, part of the problem is we reward volume. We reward some kinds of efficiency. A perfect example, if you go back a long time ago, when they were promoting, you know, scientific farming and so on and so forth, and even conservation, they would have the largest deer or corn contest. And that was a real common thing for decades. Well, now we we have the bushel per acre contest. And it wasn't the era corn, it's how much volume of corn. Uh, and I think that's a distinction. We, we really, what really, in my eyes, what it became much easier to get less diversified. And it's like, okay, I don't have time to have 20 cows out there, I can farm two more quarters of ground instead of farming 20 cows. But I think livestock is really critical in any conservation program. And, and I'm guilty, I, I haven't had livestock for quite a few years. And the reason my brother and I got rid of livestock is after my father passed away, we really concentrated on producing grain and we just didn't have time. But there's something about livestock besides what it does for the soil. I think it, what it, I think what it does maybe for a community. I like to say uh, that if the health of a farm is directly proportional to the number of beating hearts on that farm. So the more beating hearts you have, the healthier farm. So like when I, when I was young, you know, I had grandparents, you know, parents, obviously brothers, sisters, neighbors, but we had cattle, sheep, hogs, dogs, cats, uh, varmints, when we still the varmints. But birds, all of these things were, were beating hearts. And, and there was that, obviously, audio stimulation from hearing all those sounds. And, but it, like I say, it got easier. And we were almost told by some educational organizations or institutions that you need to be more efficient. You can't afford to have this around because you can do, you can make more money doing this. And I think it was really, it's really been an innocent transition because a lot of people, okay, that's what you got to do. And I, I look at in my own case, like I say, I, I we got rid of our cattle. I, I don't have hogs. I, it's just my wife and I, you know. And the one thing you learn from that when you finally get in that position 
is um, that it gets pretty lonely. That's not part of a healthy farm. One thing leads to another to where you isolate yourself. You're, you're a little bit farther from your neighbors, a little bit farther from direct contact with nature. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's innocent. It's, a, it's an innocent mistake I think we make. Um, just like setting in the cab of a tractor or combine, you, you're, you're not utilizing all your senses and abilities to do the best job. Not that you can't do an excellent job setting in a, in a cab of a machine, but there, there's a few things that you just you cannot transfer from one side of the glass to the other. That's really interesting, you know, in the pursuit of uh, perhaps efficiency and productivity, we've, we've kind of narrowed or streamlined our system, our farm system, so we don't have some of the, I would say, more a, a holistic uh, kind of um, practice of farming. Is that fair to say? And what are some obstacles you think that farmers that really keep farmers from implementing some of the the modern conservation practices Ryan described? Well, like I say, I, I don't want to be too critical because I think the vast majority of people in their heart really want to do the right thing. And you know, we get we get pulled away from that, and because we're trying to, it used to always make me mad when my dad said this, but we're trying to do too much trying to make, you know, two blades of grass grow or one grew before. Well, now it's we're trying to make four blades of grass grow. And, you know, that, that leads to, I mean, another aspect of conservation. And out here, we have limited water that falls from the sky. And so we always follow, summer followed, you know, where you, you let one year, you let it lay idle with a rotation. And I think, you know, that, that was important. I think part of conservation is is providing rest for the soil, providing rest for the for the land. And, you know, you really don't think about it. even the water that falls. I think what I think one of the most powerful things of a fallow program is is allowing that water to set there and feed everything that's in the soil that that provides life to fungi and bacteria and all those things, as opposed to saying, OK, you know, we harvested a wheat crop and you'll see this in, in magazines they'll there'll be a you know 24 row planter right behind a, a 36 36 foot header on a combine i mean there's literally seconds between between crops and see i don't believe that's conservation i believe that's you know that's manipulation that's that's borderline abuse i mean and that can work but once again if, if you're not connected with that you don't understand that it's, it's easy to to be a slave driver of the land just like people used to be a slave driver of other human beings that's a really critical point i think you know if we're saying hey well we can have more work hours as a worker let's just keep working hey we'll skip lunch oh i'll i'll cut into the night you know and and we've been doing that with the land for the name of productivity when we rest when we uh you know keep up our nutrient intake, you know, and all that. Uh, uh, we have a, a good work-life balance. You know, all those things help us support actually being more productive versus uh, burning the candle wick too, uh, uh, too hot. So, Exactly. You know, back in the early, early days, the first tractors were really large, monstrous steam engines, and, you know, and they were real 
you know, hard to turn around, took a lot. And then Henry Ford was one of the main ones that come along and developed a small tractor. And it would become really popular. And he said, you know, three things about the small tractor, he, he claimed in his ads. He'd say, first of all, they're affordable, which was true. Second of all, they're real maneuverable, which, man, you can take this and back right into your garden and cultivate your garden if you want to. And he said, third, you'll be able to spend more time with your family. Well, that's where he went off the rails because what people did was they bought two tractors and they worked longer. And it wasn't but a, but a year or two before they put lights on them. So fast forward to today, you get, you can, and that's the reason people like me could, could farm another 10 or 15 years. You can get in the cap of tractor. You don't have to touch the steering wheel. You don't have to think about anything. You can sit there. You can read a book if you want to. So you become a slave to that machine. And you're working more hours, but actually you're well rested, you know, and but you, you, you enjoy what you do, but it's, it's just, it's living a lie. I mean, you're out there, you are literally, you know, you're not efficient. If you have to farm, in my opinion, if you have to farm 20 or 30,000 acres for a family to make a living, that's not the definition of efficiency, you know, um, but, but that's what we reward. And that's how I think we, we need to, and it's not an easy answer to how do you, how do you reward, you know, stewardship? How do you reward, how do you reintroduce husbandry? You know, I mean, we, we've kind of lost that terminology uh, and that, that, that title of husbandry as opposed to other things we call it now. Now we'd like to say maybe it's efficiency, but there's a world of difference between efficiency and husbandry. Yeah, I was, I was reflecting on, on some of what you were saying earlier and, and kind of the idea of, of macro level farming where you have maybe thousands of acres and, and maybe more minor or uh, micro level farming where you can pay attention to a smaller number of acres. And it's hard to give that husbandry or that stewardship to a larger area of land, you know, as one person, I think, than, than if you have smaller acreage and, and it's a, I mean, it, I know that it's an economic uh, necessity sometimes to be farming more land, you know, so right. that you can make a living. But uh, I think, like like you're saying, it's definitely not an optimal sort of thing, maybe for the land or the people. I've got a really good article. I wish I had it in front of me about, uh, uh, it was in a um, publication called The Farmer's Advocate, which had been like a regional newspaper. And it was a really good article about talking about putting a boy on a small farm or, you know, a large farm. And it did a wonderful job of, of explaining that and, and putting it in perspective. And those, what was said then is still true. You know, it's still true today. So, yeah, I, and like I say, I, I've watched this happen. And, and, you know, we're not going to go back to horses and mules more than likely. I mean, we may have a small score. We're not, we're not going to go back to too much small equipment, but probably out, especially in this area. But... On the other hand, um, you know, I think there's room for a little bit of everything. And like, like I said earlier about the, the conservation practices, I think it was easier to do when, when you're on a smaller scale. And that's still true today because you, you can manipulate that, massage it, you can morph it, you can fit it into what goes. If you look out here, a lot of, these, a lot of this land that was settled out or some homesteaded, some not a lot. I think only about 47% was actually homestead ground. But I'm just old enough to remember driving by when I'd see, you know, a quarter section wasn't just 
a full quarter of farm ground. It, there was a pasture, there was some trees, there was this, there was that. And the reason there was a couple reasons they did that because they needed a place for the livestock. So they, you know, took the best ground, the, the flattest ground and, you know, farm that and then the, the, the grass where it grow and, you know, in good places they'd use for the livestock. And, you know, they, they just, they were, they were really pretty smart about it for the most part, not everyone, but pretty darn smart about way they, the way they designed, they actually designed their farms. You know, it's kind of the difference I say between a, you know, a producer and a farmer. We always, when you start reading, a lot of times farmers are, are referred to as producers. And boy, that really doesn't set well with me because uh, there's a lot of difference. I mean, to me, the, the producer is the one that can take, you know, all the, the mechanicals aspect, the technologies, the seeds, the chemistry, the, all, all these things put them together, the marketing, the, the guidance with the tractors, and they can go out there and, you know, raise a lot, a lot of commodity and a producer raises a lot of commodity, but then you have a, a farmer and the farmer, I think is the one that can look at a piece of land and see it as, as like a blank canvas and let, let me paint this, you know, is what he, he or she says, let me do this. And, you know, through their art, through their hands, through their techniques, they create all these things that make that a farm that produces food as opposed to a, you know, a producer that's raising a commodity. And I mean, in one sense, I mean, we need, maybe we need both, but when we, when we think about conservation, I think, I think one, you know, important aspect that, that makes it simpler is when you, when you truly farm and it's so necessary to practice conservation and be engaged in that conservation. So, and, and, you know, I think that's, that's one thing that my wife and I talk about this quite a bit over the last few years as I've been slowly working my way, you know, on the other side of a few things, you know, I, when I drive by a piece of land, that beautiful land, I had the opportunity to farm some beautiful land out here for other people. And I've had neighbors say, doesn't that bother you to drive by and see somebody else farming that? And I say, well, not really, because, you know, when I walked away from it, it was in good shape, probably better shape than when I found it. But probably the most important thing was, and I think this maybe relates to conservation as, aspect is, when I drive out, out on by that land, I still see part of me out there because that I, I did that. And I left part of me in that land. I was part of that land and I engaged it, it engaged me. We had this wonderful relationship. And when I walked away, I didn't take it all. I could have took more. I could have, you know, used it clear to the end, but no, it, it was just kind of, kind of a dance. And, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity and it provided my, me and my family a, a life style and a life, uh, provided us a, a living. And it also contributed to the greater good and to a community. So I think when you when we talk about conservation, I don't know how we do it, but and I'm not think, saying that I most people that practice conservation don't expect rewards or accolades for it necessarily. But how do we how do we say a thank you to people that that engaged with that and utilized it? and left it for the next one to have another opportunity.
And that's, that's the conservation payment we need to make somehow. We need to think about how can we, the conservation payment should kind of be, I hate to say retirement because it isn't, I don't mean retirement financially, but I guess I'm pleased that I could retire from farming on the basis of conservation because I know what I did and I know that I left it there. And, you know, if I was cremated, nothing could be better than to spread my ashes out there and say, okay, there you go. That's, I did it. You got it all, you know, I left it all behind. The, the, uh, through conservation, the legacy lives on because you've provided an opportunity for the next farmer to paint the canvas, to be able to produce because you, you sewered it in a way to leave nutrients in the soil, to leave the soil on the land, first off, <laughs> and to provide an opportunity for uh, future farming to happen, as opposed to depleting the soil, uh, allowing the soil to run off, uh, you know, um, you know, hurting the microorganisms. Am I, am I, am I following you there? Yeah. And I think the other important thing to remember is that, that nobody's perfect. And yeah, we probably took a little more and we put back. Everybody does. That's, that's the way of the earth. But if you can minimize that, I think, you know, that's real important. Another thing I think we, from a conservation, this is kind of veering off on, on a little bit different direction, but uh, oh, probably 10 years ago, I was in um, Lubbock, Texas for a meeting. And then in the evening, we went over to the retired professor's um, house and it was an adobe house. And I, I'm just kind of fascinated by this. And there's only about four or five left in Lubbock because when they did the urban renewal, you know, 70, 80 years ago, they tore all those down. But the the woman that owned that house had a nice visit with her. And we were talking about, she was talking about the adobe house. And she goes, you realize, she goes, this house was built with what was right underneath our feet. And I've thought about that for years. And, you know, they took what was there. And I think that's with what with and I say took they used they utilized what was there, and I I think about everybody no matter where you're at you're in Kansas you're in Idaho you're in Georgia wherever South America, you know the I think the real art of this is to look and see what's underneath your feet I mean if, whether it's the soil the water all those things, and how everything you need's right there, you don't need to pull things from halfway around the world, you don't need to you don't need to um, you shouldn't have to use capital to buy all these things. It's, it's there. I know the land. Yeah, you have to, and that's a big issue, but, but that's the way in, in the purest sense, that's always fascinated me. And when I came back to my farm, I looked down underneath my feet and there it was. And, you know, we talk about vision and I think you have to have vision. I think it's important. I think you have to have vision for the future and, and you have to look back as well. But I think sometimes we need to, look down and look up and see what's there. And I think once we realize that and you realize what you can do with those things, in one sense, that's the very basis of, of conservation is using what's right underneath your feet and going forward from there. Yeah. Awesome. I, uh, I was thinking about, I mean, you're, you're talking the relationship with the land and it, it being a, a relationship, a, a bit of a dance and, um, thinking of of stewardship and and our resources as as relationship as opposed to this kind of inert 
you know, substance or area that we just impose our will on and, and do whatever we want with um, is a, at least in my, my brain, a healthier, healthier way to look at it. Definitely. I appreciate your, all your thoughts on that. Um, if I just might add to that a little bit more too, you know, I've been talking about the resources and I like to talk about water because I, I irrigated for years. I, I don't, I don't have irrigated ground anymore. I sold it. I granted some irrigated ground. And when we first, I remember my father, uh, he put in an irrigation well in 1969. And the reason he did that was so he could raise alfalfa for his cattle. It wasn't to produce a cash crop. And he's told me, he said, I've, I've got to do this. He said, there's been two times in his life that we had severe drought. And he said, I had to sell my cattle right in the middle of the drought when the prices were the lowest. And he said, I want to make sure that never, ever happens again. So our family started irrigating, not to raise more crops, but as an insurance, we use that water as an insurance so we could have feed for the cattle to maintain the cattle because those cattle were a savings account of sort. And, you know, now we just, you know, and water obviously is really coming to the forefront, especially in the Western half of the United States in the last decade or so. And, you know, I grew up, I, my, my relationship with water is interesting. It started out really small. The farm we grew up on, the random farm, we had a hard time finding enough water to, for a house well. I mean, we couldn't flush a toilet and run the washing machine at the same time. And, you know, I evolved to where we had an irrigation well south of the river that pumped 2,000 gallons a minute. And, you know, but I always celebrated that water thing. I can remember as a kid, we'd ride bikes around the section to other neighbors' kids' houses and go by there. They had an old, and I can still sense this, I can still hear the, the sound, but they had an old pump jack on it because the windmill was bad. And we'd get over there and we wanted some of that cool water and we'd get a tin cup and we'd drink that water. You know, so I got to appreciate sips of water and, you know, got to a point in my farming career when I was pumping you know, 2,000 gallons a minute, you know, raising a, raising a corn crop to be sent down the railroad track somewhere else, you know, for another reason. So when we talk about water conservation, I think I know we need to understand the, the whole of it. I mean, the sheer volume of water, but we also need to understand, you know, how we're utilizing that water for what, what purpose and can... You know, the question is, can we do a better job conserving or, or are we conserving water? And I, like I, I can relate back to what my father, he was conserving water in the form of alfalfa through the Antacillis cows. And that to me is very justifiable and easily justifiable. And now we're going to be living that, that issue and, and those conflicts very much so in, a, in every year to come from now on. Yeah. Yeah. Good plug for uh, engaging around the Kansas water plan and uh, how how the state might work to steward its resources going in the future, for sure. Um, I'm wondering if we can pivot a little more to uh, some of the direct uh, farm policy stuff. Um, I was just curious to kind of start that out um, more. Tom, what, what kind of history do you have with some of um, the programs, I guess, federal programs I'm thinking of for maybe NRCS, like EQIP or CSP. Do you ever get in and utilize some of those programs or is that, is that stuff that, that you never really utilize much? Oh, I, I haven't. The last 10 years, I haven't utilized like the CSP or the EQIP thing too much. Little, just barely danced with it. I have more of a longevity history of, of way back when. 
but I've always participated in farm programs. And, you know, I think a, a lot of people don't understand, you know, the first AAA program was passed in the 1930s. In 1936, it was declared unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. And they came back and the only way they could make farm programs uh, legal was to tie a conservation question to it or a point to it. So it's still true today. Every farm program has to have a conservation tie. People kind of forget that. But that's what the only thing you can really be paid for or should be paid for is conservation. And so that has a long, deep history. I, myself, I'm my own operation. You know, I, my brother and I, we evolved into the no-till thing. And my last couple of years here on farmed, I've done a little bit of cover crop. Um, I did on my own. I didn't do it through any any program. Uh, the one tenant, I have two tenants. The one tenant is real active in the, in the uh, cover crop business. And, and uh, I think it's a wonderful concept, a wonderful idea. And like everything else, it's got to be fine-tuned. We've got to figure it out a little bit by region, what works better and what doesn't. Um, I like that idea, the living root in the soil. I mean, I think that's what it's all about. I mean, I can look back, my no-till thing, I thought that was all that raved for 25 years or so. Then I realized that it wasn't, you know, really probably if you do it in the purest sense, the only roots that ever lived there are the one plant you want to raise. And that's not probably desirable, maybe. I, I, don't, I don't think it is. We have a lot to learn. The incentives need to be kind of morphed or whatever too, maybe to to go the right direction and to, you know, lead people to opportunity as opposed to, you know, of just saying, okay, here it is, you do it. And I think we need more technical assistance. I think the assistance needs to come from the public and, you know, educational institutions. I mean, private sector corporations do some, some good things, but for the most part, you know, they have one goal in mind and that's to, you know, maximize profit, which you have a judiciary response, judiciary responsibility to do that. But I, if I had one complaint about it, I would, I would say that there isn't enough local information. There isn't enough local teaching tools and that fit it to uh, your farm, you know, and, and I, under, I understand, I think it's, a, there's some wonderful tools out there but um, and that not and I think that's the future or a good chunk of the future and I really don't know if I can address that too well but I'd be willing to think about it and I'd be willing to to share you know to sit down with people and talk about you know how things could work yeah I know there's there's definitely um more room for funding for some of those those programs I think at least on on the like equip and and CSP front um, that I thought Zach might correct me that the last time I heard, um, they were able to fund less than 50% of the applicants here in Kansas. Now some States were, um, you know, they used up their full funding or, or barely even touched it or something like that. But in Kansas, there seemed to be a lot of appetite for programs and, and wanting that technical assistance and wanting cost shares and, and working on some of those things, but we didn't, you know, the state didn't receive nearly enough money to fulfill all that. And so. That's, I think, something that we'd love to see from a Kansas Rural Center perspective is, is more support, more funding that comes from something like the Farm Bill towards 
creating some of that. And it, it kind of sounded in your last comments here that, that you were advocating, um, I have a question here about incentives versus punitive measures from the government. It sounded like you were advocating somewhat for, you know, inviting people to, to change or giving them opportunity to, to implement new things rather than making it forced, you know, federal regulation or something like that. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, you know, I'm, I, I think you have to have a little bit of both. I mean, the, the regulation thing gets that just a, oh, flash work. A lot of times when you talk about regulation, you know, I, I always have to laugh. I got neighbors that talk about, boy, I'd be glad to get rid of a bunch of these regulations. And I'm, and I ask them, I said, well, which ones do you want to get rid of and how are they impacting you? And they never can give me a single example, not a single example. Because after Freedom to Farm passed, that Farm Bill in 96, you know, that's literally what you could do whatever you want. And people pretty much did. And people are pretty much doing that. And now they're still complaining about regulation. I'm going, what regulation? I mean, most programs, you you got to have, I think, as a matter of public policy, you have to have a legitimate end game you want to get at, be it maybe reduction, reducing supply or feeding people or whatever and then yeah you have to have some regulation to be rewarded to to work into that system and play with that you know play into that system and so yeah and now i think the other thing is i mean it's not just real simple because we're not organized that's one thing farmers just aren't organized and that makes us really weak and powerless and we need to do a better job of, of thinking about how we organize and um, that can be done, I mean, locally through our FSA offices, through our committees, soil conservation committees. And we probably need to maybe even have schools that, you know, that some of those people, that would be a good source to, if they understand fully what, how much power they had, how much they can contribute to a local community. Because a lot of times, like any organization, you know, who gets on the board is just kind of like who's willing to do a little something. And maybe we need to throw a little money at some educational programs for committees and for and and for people in general. Um, I just remember in, in my lifetime going to many meetings that would explain to me how how the conservation program worked. I even back in CRP, we had meetings. And now, you know, I mean, I know we live in a different world, but you can watch uh, YouTube or you can do something else. But I think there's some value to people literally getting together physically and having these conversations because then you start to understand that you are part of something larger than yourself. Your farm is part of something larger than your farm. And that the roots that you grow go underneath your fence row and your neighbors and your neighbors come over here. All these things that come together to make this thing work. And like I say, the more isolation, the more disorganization, the weaker we are. And that I can't give you a, a if I had a good hard answer, it you know, be really easy, but but I don't, but but we have to have these conversations. That's that's a really interesting point, Tom. You know, I think if farmers are used to doing things on their own, right? You know, fix the parts on your own and uh you know, uh, doing what's right uh, with your judgment. But the idea that the farm is larger than you know, I mean, certainly we we hear things, Kansas farmers feed the world and all that. 
But I'm wondering, do you have a, a comment on, you know, the role of the government and why these federal programs are significant? Like, is that worth all the collective obligation of billions of dollars, uh, you know, through taxpayer money and through debt that we're putting towards these farm programs? I mean, we got hundreds of billions of dollars in the farm bill. Uh, for over five years and, and likely to increase. We just got $20 billion for Climate Smart Agriculture and the Inflation Reduction Act. Is it significant? Is it meaningful to have these federal programs? It absolutely is. You have to you have to sort the difference between farm policy and farm programs. You know, farm programs should reflect our policy, but we kind of toss those back and forth and maybe use them interchangeably, but, but yeah, there is a role for government and their role it cause I am the government and you and I are both are the government. And that's how we can, that's how we can do this and how we can function. It, it, it gives us a sense of organization. We do need to put some money in there. We need to mainly to create opportunity. And that's when, if you give somebody the opportunity, you know, that then, then good things happen. That's how, you know, I like to, and I mentioned a little bit earlier, but, but, um, you know that whole that whole sense of creating communities, and that's what we did over the last 150 years out in this part of the world, anyway. And the one thing I finally learned is about all that 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 the community I grew up in was born, lives, and will die. But but you need to make sure you give the ability to recreate those communities, and that's one thing I think we've learned from like in in farming. We often wonder why family members or someone doesn't come back to farm. And, and a lot of it's because, you know, they might say, well, I got this wonderful big farm. All you got to do is come in and do this. So you can step right into it. And then you realize that the next person come along doesn't want to farm that way. And so what we've perpetuated is with some forms of our subsidy is perpetuated what's here, not what's in the future. And, you know, if we're really, if we're really going to make a difference, just like me, I, and my brother, we, we accumulated a lot of ground, rented ground. We had this big farm. And it's kind of by, I don't know, matter of fate that, that he decided to, you know, go off and do something different. And it left me with too much responsibility, in my opinion. And then I started unstacking the bricks. And once I started doing that, God, I was relieved. I mean, it was just like I'd put something together that I couldn't carry. It was too big. It was too heavy. But I've unstacked it, and now somebody else has taken these bits and pieces, my equipment, a little bit of land, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they're building something new, hopefully. I mean, and you don't want to feed it to the, to the big old boar hog, but you want to, you want to allow someone else to, to build what they want. That was the beauty, I think, of the time that I was able to farm was because my dad only had one quarter ground, and that wasn't until I was in college, and that's all we had for a farm. But one thing he did, he gave my brother and I the opportunity. He he had everything appraised when he before he died, and it only appraised at like $85,000, and that's back in the 80s, of course. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you a third, your, your brother a third, I'm going to keep a third, but you guys got to do all the work. And, you know, it's not only amounted a little over $25,000, but what he did, he taught us how to farm. He taught us the ethic. He taught us all these things. He gave us the tools and he, he gave us the opportunity. And I think that's what good government farm programs can do too, is 
they can create opportunity. And I, I'm not saying they can necessarily dole out the land. If we could think about this and think about people like me that are retiring and how can you incentivize, incentivize me, you wouldn't have to do it for me, but people my age to do this for a, a younger person. How do we do that? And maybe that's where part of this should go is saying, okay, you're gonna sell your equipment and you got capital gains on this. Maybe we could reduce the capital gains or you know, some small thing that would, people would say, well, I can do it. And a lot of people I think would want to, but we actually see is when people like me will keep farming until somebody finds them dead outside someday. And then everything will be sold and it'll all, all the assets will be transferred out. And it's bad enough that we take the commodities below the cost and take them out of community. But then when we take the capital out of community and remove it, it really makes it difficult for someone else to come on line. And that's not an easy question to answer, but it's something we need to think of. And that's conservation, keeping people on the land and conserving people as well as the land. Well put. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of um, some of those comments you just made. Uh, we we interviewed some farmers for some soil health programs earlier this year. There was a bill in the Kansas legislature about uh, promoting or incentivizing soil health. And the feedback we got from those farmers was, was along the lines of what you were saying about technical assistance and, and having that support and, and kind of longer term walking aside. What they were advocating for in that context was, you know, a five-year technical assistance program or, or maybe financial offset of getting into say cover crops because just learning and doing it for one year might work might fail but someone might quit and just move on and to make make more more real change you needing that kind of longer term investment of support both financially and, and maybe relationally or, or you know technical assistance wise from from local communities and, and the folks who know what they're doing to kind of bolster some of those changes uh, to actually make them stick I guess. I know that's not exactly what you were saying, but it, it felt a kind of akin to where, where, where you were coming from there. So, Yeah, there's a lot of this. I mean, just like we just need to provide opportunity for somebody to put roots in this soil because that will, that will hold it together just like physical roots will. And you understand the roots that, that I put down in this land, when I'm gone, they like roots in nature, they decay, they rot, but then the, those should create pathways for something else or someone else. That's what's important about the roots that I have, knowing that they are going to die, decay, but we ought to make sure that, okay, somebody knows they're there and give them opportunity to, to follow some of those paths. The pathways made by the roots you leave behind. That's really poetic, Tom. I like, I like that. That's good. Yeah, true. Well, Tom, I got just one more question for you, if you'll indulge me. Uh, I, you know, I, I really appreciate your historical sense. I appreciate uh, what you've given to us uh, and our listeners today. I'm wondering if you can pull out your crystal ball and help us think about the future and what might be the most critical either for society or our, our policymakers uh, locally or at the federal level, what's going to be the biggest, uh, the thing that really kicks off what we need to do for future opportunity, future farmers, a better uh, stewardship of the land, et cetera? 
Oh boy. You say it's a big question, Nick. I think envelopes all the things that we talked about in one sense, but but um, I think we need to well, there's several things maybe. We need to differentiate between food and commodities. And the commodities are important. They're they're very important and and but we gotta start putting a value on on uh, what's important and that might be that and what is people on the land and people doing this um how we get there i don't know um kind of caught me off guard on this question to be perfectly honest um i think about in my case i mean one little thing i can do is make sure at this point the land that i've been entrusted to me that i can make sure it goes to someone else as kind of like-minded or I'd like to think like-minded. And I know I can't control that. You know, how we incentivize is important. I don't know how we, you know, we talk about payment limits and I think that's that's really critical. I, I've always thought that, and this is really just a micro thing, is that, that payments ought to be made to individual social security numbers, not to corporations or LLCs or all this stuff to where that's how you really determine uh, that the money goes in a in a, in a good place and, and the right thing. Uh, we need to we need to understand how minute the farmer's share is of all all this food cost that people expand, and we need to to make sure that people have access to to what we do. And you know, and we like I say once again, we're isolated. We need to probably we need to organize a lot lot better. And um, that's, you know, the less organized we are, the more, the power, more powerless we are. I mean, we're just, we're just weak. And I, I don't know how you get together people to have those like-minded conver conversations because everybody's busy. You know, start having these local conversations. Local problems deserve local answers, local discussion we need to facilitate that. I mean, we need to look at the big picture too. What I do, if I can make my community better, if I can do just a little bit locally, if everybody does a little bit locally, then all at once the problem goes away because everybody's doing it locally. And, uh, but you have to, like I say, you have to have the big picture too, but, but it's, um, it's an age old question. I got a five row file cabinet full of people that, and ideas and issues that they've come up with. And a lot of people with good intentions, and uh, but it takes cooperation. Sorry. Well, hey, that's I'd say that's a pretty good answer. What do you think, Ryan? That was a pretty tough question, and that's a question uh, a lot of people been uh, wrestling with for a long time. So uh, thanks, thanks for all that, Ryan. Yeah, I think that is a, an excellent note to wrap up on, if if that's okay with you. Um, so I'll just say thank you to both of you and. Uh, Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kansas Rural Center. Uh, this, this Farm Bill podcast series is brought to you by generous funding from the National Healthy Soils Policy Network. To learn more about NHSPN, visit soilpolicynetwork.org. Thank you again to our co-host, Zach Pastora, Communications Coordinator, Charlotte French-Allen, and most of all, thank you to you, Tom Diesel, who let us interview you for this episode. So to find out more about Kansas Rural Center, 
and our work, please visit kansasruralcenter.org and join us at our annual Food and Farm Conference in Salina, Kansas, this November 11th and 12th. We hope to see you there. Like and share this episode with friends and send us feedback on what you'd like to see featured in our podcast feed in the future at media at kansasruralcenter.org.